Welcome back to Banter, a policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Spencer Moore. And I'm Cece Gallagher. Cece, we're joined today by Brookings Institution Senior Fellow Isabel Sawhill. Dr. Sawhill, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to focus our conversation on your most recent book, The Forgotten Americans. It was published this past year. Uh, But before we do that, I did want to touch on one other collaboration that you all had with a number of public policy researchers, including several here at the American Enterprise Institute, called Work Skills Community. Uh, We had Robert Doerr and Ben Harris from Results for America on the show back in December to talk about that report. And I wonder if you might talk about your experience collaborating with these researchers uh, and touch a little bit on the report and why you think it's important. Uh, The Work Skills Community Report is uh, a wonderful uh, synthesis of a year-long effort by a group of us, uh, both from Brookings and from AEI and from some other institutions uh, as well, a very diverse group. Uh, and we discussed uh, what we could do for the working class in this country um, for about a year. Uh, we didn't all agree all the time, but we really tried to come to some consensus policies for this group. And I think we were quite successful. I certainly personally found it very, very uh, useful to be in this kind of civil dialogue with uh, other people who are well-informed but who don't always uh, agree with each other. And we did find compromise, and I think we are a role model, if you will, for other groups uh, trying to find compromise on difficult issues. I know David Brooks gave a nice shout-out for the report, which I was very pleased to see, and the group has been traveling around the country, uh, talking with uh, local community leaders, and I think uh, it—I hope it gets a lot more attention. I think that piece was called the the chastened establishment or return of the chase. Do you feel like you're part of the chastened establishment? I, I, <laughs> I, I've never thought of myself as an establishment person, but I'm happy to be elected to that group. There you go. Well, it dovetails really, really nicely with The Forgotten Americans, your book. We will link to it in our show notes. Uh, if you're a hard copy person, which I think everyone at this table probably is, and you'd like a physical copy of WorkSkills Community, you can send an email to banter at AEI.org, and we'll send you a copy in the mail. Now let's dig in a bit on your book. So it's, of course, called The Forgotten Americans. Who exactly are these forgotten Americans and why and how have they been forgotten? So there's no precise definition of the forgotten Americans. There are those who've been left behind by trade, technology, deindustrialization. But in an effort to be a, a bit more precise and to get some data, I did uh, define them as those without a four-year college degree working age, and in the bottom half of the income distribution. Uh, When you look at their composition, a little over half of them are white. Uh, Then there's a chunk that's African-American, and the biggest chunk is Latino and a couple of other minority groups. We thought the book was unique because you actually traveled around and spoke to uh, members of uh, this community. So I wonder if in your travels, what you ascertained or what you gathered from these Americans about what they felt like was their best opportunity to succeed? Could they achieve the American dream, in their opinion? Uh, Well, just to clarify, first of all, I did these focus groups around the country after the book had gone to press. Mm -hmm. So not all of that is in the book, but it is in a separate essay that's on the Brookings website. And I did this because after I'd done all of the research that's in the book, 
I felt like I needed to get out there and and really field test a lot of my ideas, both about why they were in trouble and what might help them. And so I found it very, very useful to do this. I went to three cities, uh, Syracuse, New York, Greensboro, North Carolina, and St. Louis, Missouri, and talked to this exact same group that I just defined. Uh, I found that they... They did. They're not doing well from an economic perspective. They really complain, especially about the fact that their wages haven't gone up mm-hmm. in recent decades or years, and that, of course, is consistent with the um, more formal data. Uh, they said it's not hard to find a job. You know, if you're willing to work at McDonald's or some other low-wage uh, retail uh, outlet. You uh, are going to be fine, but that's not adequate to support a family, um, according to most of them. They, I talk a lot in my book about reskilling America. That's also in the uh, AEI Brookings report on uh, work uh, skills and community. They, they understand they don't have the skills needed for higher-paying jobs. But they're a little skeptical that college for everyone is the right solution. Uh, and they are a bit resentful of people, younger people with college degrees, you know, the right credentials, coming into the workplace and not knowing how to do anything very practical. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a turning away from... Um, the idea that just having that that BA degree is sufficient, yeah. uh, and on top of that, given the fact that they don't have those degrees and they feel like they have the experience and the know-how to do the jobs well, they're resentful. Huh. Now we've talked with a lot of our recent guests about you know we have this BA bias in our culture. How do we overcome that in? When we're talking about actually reskilling people, how, there's a lot of stigma around it. What do you propose to get us to a place where we don't have college for all as the default? I find that in giving uh, talks, and I've given a lot in the last uh, month or two, that people are beginning to understand this. I mean, the mindset is changing. Uh, we have a whole chapter in our uh, report. The, the Brookings AEI report about this that really says we've got to move away from college for all. And we may even need to reallocate some funding from the, you know, $160 billion a year we spend on helping people go to college versus helping them get the practical skills, the career and technical education that they that they need. So, I, I see the, the ball is moving on this front. Uh, I also think that we are beginning to see that um, the rate of return on college is not everything that people have thought it should be. And they are young people are not getting the counseling. I'm talking about in junior high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, People are not being told, well, it isn't necessarily going to guarantee you a great job just because you get your four-year BA degree, especially if it's not from an elite school. So um, 
the message is needs to trickle down to the younger generation, and they need better counseling. In the book, you compare it to you basically say it's a GI Bill for working Americans. I, I wonder how you kind of landed on GI Bill as the comparison. And uh, the GI Bill was actually pretty expensive. I mean, it did a lot of amazing things for this country. But how do you how do you think that we should pay for it, moving money away from just a focus on higher education? And then how might practically might that work? Are we, are we trying to reskill people who are mid-career or are we trying to get them early on so that they can learn a skill when they're very young? Well, I think on the early on versus uh, mid-career, uh, it needs to be some of both. Yeah. And uh, obviously, at the bottom of all of this is a K-12 through education system that is not as good as it should be. Uh, now, I that would take a whole nother book to get into the problems in our education system. And so I'm not going to go there except to acknowledge that it's really important. Uh, yes, it's going to take some new resources, no question in my mind. And some of them can come from reallocating money uh, from what we're now using to help people pay for college. But I don't think that can be the only solution. I do think we need new resources. I think if we don't invest in our workforce, uh, we're not going to be competitive as a country. And uh, we are going to fall further and further behind. And so there's an economic rationale for it. There's also a social rationale for it. You know, our politics is not going to work. Democracy is not going to be sustainable if you have a very large chunk of people who are not able to earn a decent living. So um, I, I, I don't know where the money's going to come from. I personally think we need to raise some new revenues. Uh, we can get into that if you want. But um, uh, no, you cannot do this totally on the cheap. Yeah, I want to talk into some of those revenue raising means that you mentioned in the book. You talk about the carbon tax a bit. You talk about a value-added tax. Can you speak briefly to each of those um, proposals and how realistic and politically viable those options are? Well, what's politically viable really depends upon the times we live in and who's um, been elected. So uh, no question it's been very difficult in recent uh, decades to raise any revenue. In fact, we've done just the reverse. In the 2017 tax bill, we gave away about $1.5 trillion, mostly to corporations. I don't think the money or the law was well designed to encourage economic growth. Uh, and most of the individual income tax cuts that were part of that law are going to go away. They're temporary. So mainly what we've done is given a uh, lot of money to corporations. I think the corporate tax rate needed to be reduced, but I don't know if it needed to be reduced as much as it was, and I'm not sure that was the best way to structure the law. But without getting into that, um, you ask about a value-added tax and a carbon tax. Um, you know, I think that almost any tax expert could wax uh, for an hour about why both make sense. And, um, I mean, you know, we should be taxing anything but work. We should be taxing consumption, which is what a VAT does. It's like a national sales tax, not work. Uh, we should be taxing the things we don't want a lot of. So taxing carbon uh, makes great sense in terms of climate change and other uh, issues. Uh, uh, this is going to be a political uh, battle, 
And I don't know where it's going to go, but I think that those of us who have looked at tax policy do believe, many of us, that those two options should be on the table. The other option I'd put on the table is taxing wealth, mm-hmm. especially through uh, a an estate tax. Uh, right now, um, nobody pays a penny of tax when they give money to their bequeath money to their children, unless they have over $22 million as a couple or $11 million as an individual. Now, I'm in favor of being able to pass on to your children some of your wealth. You know, a few million dollars, fine. $22 million, that's too much without paying any taxes. Most of our audience, I am going to assume, probably leans right of center, and they often hear right-of-center arguments about the estate tax, and they would probably call it the death tax. I wonder, um, you identify as a Democrat, you worked in the Clinton administration in the 90s. Can you give the left-of-center perspective on the estate tax, why you don't think that it's double taxation and why you think that is actually a fair way to raise revenue? Uh, I'd be happy to. The um so-called death tax is not actually paid by dead people. By definition, dead people don't pay taxes. Their heirs do. Their heirs are the ones who bear the burden of any tax on an estate. So that's point one. We have data on their heirs, um, the children of the super wealthy, and they are also wealthy, uh, as you might expect. But I mean, you can that can be shown with hard data. Uh, thirdly, I think that we all know we have had growing income inequality, and we have uh, quite a unprecedented level of income inequality in the United States now. And when you allow that um, inequality in income to be passed on to the next generation in the form of bequests, Uh, you get growing amounts of wealth inequality that are even greater than the income inequality, and you begin to become a class-stratified society. And I I think the American ethic is about meritocracy. It's about opportunity. It's about people earning their own way. And so uh, from my perspective... Uh, the ability of wealthy people to pass their advantages on to their children um, is not uh, consistent with an ethic of meritocracy and opportunity. Let's take a quick break. This is a fascinating conversation. Um, Stay with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Isabel Saulhill. This is Tyler Castle, AEI's Director of Academic Programs. Each year, AEI hosts its Summer Honors Program, which brings together top undergraduate students from around the country and across the political spectrum to discuss some of the most pressing public policy challenges facing our country. Students participate in small, intensive seminars taught by AEI scholars and other policy experts, interact with leading policy thinkers and practitioners, and advance their careers through site visits and high-level networking opportunities. If you are a current undergraduate interested in policy, or if you know someone who would be a great fit for the program, you can learn more by visiting aei.org slash summer honors or by clicking the For Students tab on the AEI homepage. And we're back with Dr. Isabel Sahil. 
Let's shift our focus a little bit to talking about the idea of economic growth. There's been an interesting debate on the right about how much of our economic policy should focus on just purely driving economic growth. What do you make of arguments put forth by people like Orrin Cass that economic growth is a good thing but shouldn't be driving our policy decisions? Actually, um, Orrin Cass and I both wrote books about the same time, came out uh, uh, just recently, and we're very much in agreement on this. So there is the uh, potential here for, if you will, a sort of left-right convergence around the idea that economic growth by itself uh, is not the solution to our problems. I don't think... uh, Anyone, including Oren or myself, would argue that growth isn't helpful and that we shouldn't try to get more of it. But the fact is, uh, first of all, economists um, don't really know how to get more growth. They talk a lot about, oh, we could get more growth if we reduce tax rates, especially high marginal tax rates. We could get more growth if we reduced regulations and a few other things of that sort. But really, it hasn't been very effective, those policies. And I don't really think we know um, uh, how to to get more growth. We had a lot more growth in the era when we had much higher tax rates uh, than we have now. So the correlation between uh, lower taxes and more growth is just simply not what you would want it to be if you believed the uh, notion of the supply side notions about this. So um, I think I think we really need to go down some uh, some new um, avenues here. And what I like about uh, Oren's book, and I have some of this in my book as well, is that both of us are struggling with let's find a new way forward to um, improve the economic prospects of a broad segment of the population. We, we don't exactly know how to do that, but we need to experiment with some new ideas. He, both of, he, both Orrin Cass and myself really like the idea of uh, boosting the reward for work. You know, I can't emphasize that too much. Uh, people are—think about productivity. Mm-hmm. You know, productivity is the real driver of economic growth. And uh, the other big driver is labor force participation. What we're seeing is stagnant wages and declining labor force participation, as your own Nick Eberstadt has shown in another new book. And how are we going to get labor force participation, especially amongst men, and also um, productivity uh, amongst average workers to be higher than it is now. Well, one way is to reward them more when they do go to work. Right. And both Oren and I have proposed that we subsidize wages or provide tax credits for work for that reason. You know, one thing I think that a lot of people maybe don't understand about Washington, D.C. is that there are actually first principles that those on the left and the right actually do agree with. And one of those, it's one of the values that you talk, and it's the theme of your book, is work. Um, can you talk about when you extremely intelligent economists get in the room, why you all think that work is so important? And is there just a broad agreement across, you know, except for the fringes maybe, that work is a critical American value that we should cherish? Well, from an economic perspective, um, workers are what produce GDP. 
And, uh, you know, 70% or 65% or so of GDP is made up of uh, the earnings that go to go to people who, who work. They're, they're, that's the group that's producing. Yeah. Yes, we need capital. Yes, we need innovation and entrepreneurship. But, you know, if you don't get the worker piece right, you're not going to have prosperity. Um, secondly, it's not just an economic issue. Uh, one of the reasons work is a th- big theme in my book, as it really is the central theme, is because I believe that work is not just a way to earn a living. It's not just a way to um, increase the GDP. It is also um, the thing that provides respect and um, a sense of contributing and other non-economic benefits to those that do it. Uh, Your president, Arthur Brooks, has been particularly uh, articulate on this in saying, you know, the dignity of work matters. And when I did my focus groups around the country, I ran into that a lot. Um, people don't talk just about the fact that they wish their wages were higher so they had more take-home income. They talk about the fact that their employers don't appreciate them enough. You know, I remember one guy saying, you know, if they can't raise our wages because they're not making profits, well, fine, but at least they could send us a letter at the end of the year saying we appreciate what you did for us. And they care about loyalty, by the way, of the company to them. And when they don't feel any loyalty, when they feel they could be laid off at any moment or that their work could be outsourced, then they don't in turn feel much loyalty towards their employer or their company. Now, you mentioned employees' relationships to their employers. Should we be looking more to private businesses to take part in helping with reskilling and just building up this important work and helping these forgotten Americans? I'm really glad you asked that question. I have a whole chapter in the book about the important role that the private sector could be playing in this whole area. Um, First of all, let's not assume that government knows how to train people. Uh, they don't know nearly as well how to train people as the private sector does. Uh, We need training programs that are demand-driven, that are uh, created by businesses to uh, get them the skills that they need. So how do we do that? Uh, One way is by providing some tax incentives to businesses that do a lot of on-the-job training. These could be apprenticeships. They could be partnerships with community colleges or uh, other technical training institutions. Uh, But really, um, it used to be that American businesses did train their workers. Uh, That has declined over time. Some of that is related, uh, especially over the last decade, to the fact that the economy was not at full employment and there was less incentive for businesses to train. And now that we're getting down to very low unemployment rates, they are beginning to do more of it. But I think it's also a shift in the culture of the corporate world or the business world. And we need to shift that culture back towards the idea that businesses are the best people to do the training, but uh, they do have to worry that once trained, a worker will leave and they'll lose their investment. Mm -hmm. So that's an argument for why uh, public policy should um, put its thumb on the scale to encourage uh, more training. 
Well, Dr. Soho, we're out of time. We uh, very much appreciate you joining us. Once again, your book is called The Forgotten Americans, an Economic Agenda for a Divided Nation. We encourage all of our listeners to check out a copy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we have a lot to link to this week, including the book page for The Forgotten Americans. We'll also link to Dr. Saul Hill's essay that she referenced on the Brookings Institution website. Talks a lot about the focus groups that she had out in Syracuse, St. Louis, in Greensboro, North Carolina. Of course, we'll link to the Work Skills Community Report as well. And once again, if you want a hard copy of that, you can send your name and address to banter at AEI.org, and we'll send you one in the mail. Thanks, as always, for listening. And if you're not already, we encourage you to subscribe to Banter on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating. We'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, for Isabel Sawhill and Cece Galligly, this is Spencer Moore signing off. Thank you.